Exodus 4, verses 1 through 26. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. <clears throat> Glad you're here today. Let's uh, pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we are here and we long to hear from you. We want to receive your word with gladness, believing that it is the word of God for our souls, believing that in your great and divine providence you have us here to be able to hear Exodus 4 today, and you have a reason for the intersection of your word and our lives on this Lord's Day. And so we want to hear from you, we want to receive your word, and we want to learn so would you, Holy Spirit, now come and be our teacher? Would you use this passage to either, or perhaps both, teach us what it means to trust and also what it means to obey? And we need you 
to do these things. It's been a week since we've been together, and we need to be reminded of the things of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1887, after an evangelistic meeting of Dwight Moody, there was an after-service testimonial gathering, and people began sharing what God was doing in their lives. And a young man stood and began sharing a testimony of what God had been speaking to him about. He wasn't well trained in the scriptures or in terms of doctrine, but the way in which he ended his testimony struck a chord with those who were in the room and heard what he said. In particular, it struck a chord with a man by the name of Daniel Towner, who was the musical director of a number of churches and also of Moody Bible Institute. The young man said this, He said, I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. That little phrase struck Towner. He brought the line to a friend of his, Pastor John Samus, who was a Presbyterian minister, and they composed the lyrics that are familiar to many of us. Trust and obey. I have sung this song hundreds of times at bedtime. It is Savannah's favorite song, and it's amazing how fast you can sing it when you want a kid to go to bed. (laughs) I won't give you the 2x speed, but the lyrics go like this. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Today I want to talk about this idea of what it means to trust and obey. You realize, I hope, that this idea of trusting and obeying is really a central element of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We trust, meaning we believe God's promises, and we obey, we choose to do what His will and His Word tells us. It's true for anyone who claims to be a Christian. It means that we choose to trust and we choose to obey. And you'll see this all over the New Testament, this theme of trusting and obeying. And in fact, you see it most evidently in the life of Jesus. But we also see this in the Old Testament. And in particular, in Exodus chapter 4, we see it in the life of Moses. And today we're going to look at how Moses learns an important lesson about trust and obedience. And my hope is that you will also learn some important lessons about trust and obedience. You're going to have to think through this question. Why are you here today? I don't mean, why are you here? I mean, why are you here on this Sunday with this text? And how has God so orchestrated and designed your life that you happen to be here To hear a message on trust and obedience. That doesn't happen by accident. God has something for each of us today. Last week, we were in chapter 3 of Exodus, and we saw Moses experience God in the burning bush as God revealed himself to Moses. We heard God, when Moses said, well, when I go to Israel and they say, what's his name? This God, what should I say? And God in that moment didn't give Moses a name. He gave him a verb. To be. Tell him, I am who I am. God is in effect saying, I am beyond the categories of the normal understanding of how you think about gods. I am who I am. And in that conversation with Moses, 
God revealed that He is loving, He's holy, He's compassionate, He's a deliverer, He is present, He's self-existent, and He's sovereign. And God does all of this, revealing who He is to Moses, because He is going to use Moses as the means by which God will deliver His people Israel out of the clutches of Egypt. God is going to confront, or Moses rather, is going to confront Pharaoh. He's going to challenge the power of the Egyptian gods, and then he's going to lead Israel for the next 40 years. But before Moses can take the mantle of this leadership, before he embraces the challenge of being the instrument that God will use to do the greatest deliverance, really, in Israel's history, there are some things that God has to do inside of Moses' heart in regards to the matter of trust and obedience. In other words... Whether it's Moses or whether it's you or me, God only uses those people who have learned to trust and obey. It's not just a matter of being happy in Jesus. That's true. The song is correct. But it's even more than that. There's a deeper element here. And that is this. In order for you to be used by God, in order for him to put you into his service, in order for you to really understand what the Christian life is all about, you have to understand lesson 101, which is this. You have to trust and you have to obey. And so today as we look at the story of Moses' life, I want you to keep two things in mind. First, as we look at his life, keep in mind that the person who trusted and obeyed in a perfect way beyond what we can even fathom is, of course, Jesus. And we'll come back to him throughout this text. But also I want you to think about the implications for your own life, about what does it mean for you to trust. Some of you had in the last week some circumstances come up in your life that have been very, very challenging, and it should feel like the very kiss of God that you are here today and we are talking about trust. Obedience. What does it mean to really obey? These are things that we need to ponder and think about. So the outline today is very simple. We're going to first look at the trust issue that Moses needs to deal with, and then secondly looking at the obedience issue that Moses had to deal with, all the while asking ourselves, how do we need to deal with trust, and how do we need to deal with obedience? So here's the first point, the trust issue. So Moses hears about God's mission for him. He hears what God plans to do with the people of Israel. And chapter 4 then records three excuses or three objections which Moses gives. These objections follow the clear call of God in Moses' life. And Moses, like you and me, has to work through his past, his fears, his doubts, his inadequacies. He has to not only learn these great truths about God at the burning bush, he has to learn how to exercise the muscles of trust. He needs to learn what it means to obey. But first, Moses has to learn what it means to put his confidence in God. And we see this in the three excuses that he gives. Objection number one is simply, they won't believe me. You find this in verse one. The tone that Moses gives here is not, or rather that he uses, is not very tentative. He simply just says, they won't believe me. Not, well, what happens if they don't believe me? He just says, they won't believe me. Look at Exodus 4.1. Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. In some respects, Moses may be a bit justified for thinking this way. After all, it had been 40 years since he had left Egypt. 
And if he had reputation, any reputation at all that was left in the land, it certainly wasn't very positive. And this Johnny come lately on the scenes, no doubt would be viewed by the elders of Israel as, God hasn't spoken to you. How do we know, in fact, that God has spoken to you? But Moses really isn't talking about the Israelites. He's actually talking about his own doubt, his own struggles. Now what God does to address these issues is he gives Moses three supernatural signs in order to uh, prove that he is on a divine mission. And these signs are not only for Israel's benefit, I think they were also for Moses' benefit. Because as he is going to experience these signs, they are also going to strengthen his faith, which is a way that God often works. Not only does he want to do things through us, he must first work in us. So the three signs are a staff that turns into a snake, a leprous hand that is then healed, and the turning of the Nile water into blood. Each of these signs, these symbols, would have been personal and familiar to Moses. His staff, his hand, the Nile River. In each case, they were a natural, normal thing, and then they took on a scary form. And in each case, Moses had to, in order to perform the sign, had to take a step of faith. And so God is building his trust as he is even trying to prove that he's real in terms of his mission. Now look at verses 2 and 3. In verses 2 and 3, we see that Moses was told to throw down his staff, and when he threw it down, it immediately became a snake. Can you imagine this moment? Takes a staff, throws it down, and all of a sudden it becomes a disgusting, slithering snake. And so the text says that Moses ran. <laughs> Moses wrote this, right? He's like, yeah, I'm out of here. He wrote that, right? And of course, you would do the same thing, wouldn't you? Isn't there something inherently slimy and scary and spooky about snakes? Where they slither on the ground. If you're gardening, all of a sudden a little gardener snake appears and you and you run. It's just, it's scary. I've been swimming in water before and seen a, a water snake come in my direction. They, there is just something really not uh, fun about snakes. They just, they're just kind of gross. The way they slither on the ground, a little forked tongue that keeps shooting out. It just invites people to, all right, let's book it. Let's get out of here. So Moses does that, and then in verse 4, God tests Moses by saying, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. Now, you don't have to be a herpetologist, that by the way is a snake um, studier, I know this from Dora, just so you know, so (laughs) all kidding aside, that's the only way I know a herpetologist, those who study snakes, thank you Dora and Diego, so... Yeah, I don't have to be a herpetologist to know that you don't pick up a snake by its tail. I mean, you do that, and that slithering dynamic of that snake's going to really be evident. It's going to come back, and it's going to bite you. If you're going to grab a snake, it's just common sense. You grab it by the head, not by the tail. So Moses has to grab this snake. He grabs it by the tail. It accentuates the danger, and yet he does it. And yet Moses embraces God's command and the snake turns back into a staff. I mean, what a moment this must have been. Throw it on the ground, becomes a snake, runs away, comes back, grabs it by the tail, and whoop, back to a staff again. Wow. Verse 5. It's rather interesting. God tells Moses what he is to do with this sign. He says, This sign is given so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. So he gives him, you're going to do this sign so that all of these names, the, this description of who and what God is, will be verified in the presence of Israel. And I know 
that these words are not just directed to Israel, they're also directed to Moses. This, this staff that I've now turned into a snake and back to a staff again is to remind you that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's the first sign. The second one involves the scary disease of leprosy. In verse 6, we're told that Moses is told to put his hand inside of his cloak, and when he removes his hand, it's full of leprosy. A leprosy was a, a term for all sorts of skin ailments that plagued the people of the ancient Near East. It was a greatly feared disease because of the poor cure rate And it meant that if you had leprosy, you would then be isolated from the rest of the community. This was a disease that not only affected your body, it affected your social social standing. If you were in Israel, uh, you'd have to, um, during the time of Jesus, for instance, you'd have to call out, unclean, unclean, as people came near you, and lepers lived in colonies. So it was viewed as a highly contagious disease that that typically spread from one part of the body to another. So you can imagine Moses' horror when he pulls his hand out from his own cloak and it's full of leprosy. I mean, your first thought would be, what's in there, right? Oh my goodness, I pulled my hand out, look at my hand. Two thoughts, you know, I got leprosy here, I got leprosy somewhere in here. And then God says to put his hand back into his cloak. And that, I mean, that's a little scary thing. Here I have this diseased hand, I'm going to put it back next to my body. And then Moses pulls his hand out again and it's healed. You can imagine the the swing of emotions that Moses was dealing with. Verse 7, it says it was restored like the rest of the flesh. Then we see the final sign in verse 9. Moses is given this last sign, and it's directly related to the Nile, and it will be repeated in the ten plagues that will come in the future. Verse 9, it says this, But if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So the Nile is a very significant river in Egyptian culture. Really, the entire life of the Egyptians centered around the Nile River. It was the source of all physical life in this arid land. When the Nile flooded, the rich soil uh, from the sediments of the the Nile River began to spill over the banks and people could plant their crops. Uh, Water and fowl were water life and... and, and, um, Water animals were a part of the uh, the lifeblood of this wonderful river. And most people who lived in Egypt lived close enough in proximity to it for both irrigation, for water, for sustenance. And so to take the, the, the Nile River water and then to turn it to blood is not just a miracle. It's actually a statement. God is saying something here. And for that matter, all of these signs are statements. The the staff to snake to staff miracle is designed to show God's power that he can make something harmless and then dangerous and harmless again. God controls the switch. Something is safe, then it's dangerous, then it's safe again, and God pulls the switch. Regards to leprosy, leprosy miracles showed that God has power over disease. He can make someone sick, and he can heal them again, and he does this at his own will. Further, God controls even the so-called gods of Egypt. He can take the sacred water of the Nile and turn it into blood. So each of these signs are designed to communicate something about God's worthiness of trust and belief. So when Moses, in his first objection, says, they won't believe me, he's really, in effect, questioning whether Moses can believe that God's going to do this. And so God gives him these three signs. The second objection is that Moses says, I'm not eloquent. 
Verse 10, he says, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. What's this all about? Some people think that Moses had some sort of speech defect or impediment, that he wasn't very good with words. But if you read the rest of the book of Exodus, it's pretty clear that Moses does a lot of talking, and he's quite effective at it. He talks to Pharaoh, he talks to the people of Israel. And so what it seems that's happening here is not that Moses has some sort of speech impediment, but rather he's looking for another excuse as to why he's not up for this task. In effect, saying, God, I, I just I'm not up to this. I'm not this confident. In fact, in verse 12, we'll see in a moment that Moses is just trying to get out of this calling. And so what he's doing here is expressing a level of a lack of self-confidence. The task seems so great, he's not sure he's really qualified, and Moses is questioning God's wisdom in selecting him for this task. Notice God's response. God said, verse 11, Who has made man's mouth? At this point, God's not looking for an answer, is he? He's not looking for Moses to go, oh, you are. So just a hint. If God ever speaks to you this way, shh, don't say a thing. Okay? Don't say a thing. God God talks this way often, but he's not talking this way because he wants you to give him an answer. He wants to talk to you this way so you'll be quiet and start to trust him. This is what happens in Job. God says, where were you when I formed the earth? I mean, Job doesn't say, um, I was dead. I mean, he doesn't say anything, right? Why? Because the only answer to the question is silence. He says, who made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And again, here we see this pattern that is often the case in Scripture, where God points people in their doubt back to himself. God points people in their struggle to who he is. I've said this many times before, but it it bears repeating that the who question is far more satisfying and effective than the why question or the when question or the how question. In fact, some of you, the main reason you may be here today is because you need to give up the why, the when, and the how. And you just need to park on who. In other words, you may not know why all these circumstances are happening. You may not know why God has put you in the position he's put you in. You may not know how in the world it's all going to work out. You may not feel qualified. But at the end of the day, it isn't about you in the first place. It is about him. It's the who question that is far more significant. God says in verse 12, I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God promises that Moses will be empowered. Do you know that there is a There's a fine line difference between God-centered humility and self-centered self-deprecation. Do you know the difference? The difference is this. Self-centered self-deprecation puts too much emphasis on, I can't do this, I can't make this happen, this one, I'm just, I'm not up to this. Maybe that God puts a circumstance in your life, you just throw up your hands and say, I can't do this, I can't handle this kid that God's given me, I can't handle my spouse's issue, can't handle this boss that's in my life, I can't handle this cancer thing. And you start begin talking in self-deprecating ways, and it sounds initially like it is humble, when in fact it is not. Often this self-centered self-deprecation stems from a fear of failure, a fear of looking bad, a fear of being embarrassed. There are some people, some of you in this room, you won't do anything unless you're 100% sure it'll work out. Why? Because you're so afraid of failure, you'll never risk anything. 
And while it may sound humble at first, the real issue underlying the issue is a matter of trust. God-centered humility says, I can't do this on my own, but I'm going to trust that you're going to give me what I need to follow you. God-centered humility says, I can't figure all of this out right now, but I'm going to trust that you're going to give me the grace to do what I need to do. You ever had a schedule so full, so busy, so packed, and just on a, on a daily basis, and you just look at your life and go, I don't know how in the world I'm going to do this, and yet you begin the day and say, Lord, I ask you by your grace to give me what I need in order to be able to do this day to day. And God supplies grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's important for us to learn this lesson that some things we think we can't do, God wants to do in and through us. And we have to settle this issue, otherwise we're... Not very useful. When I was candidating here, when the church and I were in conversation about me coming here as lead pastor, I began to do some background research on College Park Church. I wanted to know a little bit about the church's history, strengths, weaknesses, things like that. And I also knew of the church's uh, reputation uh, in this community and its um, a position in terms of the proclamation of the Word of God. And it was a bit intimidating. And I just wanted to know, you know, so what am I getting myself into? And so uh, there was a, a guy who was a church planter in the area here, and I happened to be at a meeting with him. And over lunch, I said, hey, um, I have this friend who's uh, considering going to College Park Church, and I'd like to know, um, just what do you know about that church and everything? Well, the former pastor's name here was Kimber Kaufman, and he was you know, known throughout the Midwest as a phenomenal communicator of God's Word. And, and I knew of him and heard him speak before, and and this dear brother, this church planter, said to me, "Ah, oh, it's a great church, and um, yeah, it's just it's a great place." But I'll tell you what, good luck to the guy that has to follow Kimber Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> I remember going back to my hotel room and calling my wife and said, "You are not going to believe the conversation I had today." <laughs> and what that was a part of the process of. Me saying, Lord, this may be a task bigger than what I can even imagine. And what we had to settle was this. If you're calling us to this, then you're going to give us the grace that we need. We're going to give you the grace and taking those steps of faith. But it's something that God has to do in all of our hearts before he can really use us for his glory. You may be in one of those positions right now, wondering how, how in the world could I possibly deal with the issue that's in front of me. It may be a a spiritual issue in someone else's life. It may be right in your own home. You may look at your own children, your own offspring, and wonder, what planet did this kid come from? I'm not qualified or equipped to be able to deal with this. And the reality is you are. God's just given you this child in order so that His grace can shine in and through you. And sometimes it's a daily matter of trust for us to say, Lord, I'm going to trust that you know what you're doing I'm not eloquent, said Moses. Here's the third objection. He just bottom lines it. Here's what really is going on. He says, send somebody else. Verse 13. Oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. It's interesting that Moses says this. He actually just refused the refuses the call of God. And if you read your Bible, you'll find this generally doesn't work out well. Actually, that's too soft. This never works out well. God always wins. Don't believe me? Book of Jonah. I'm not going to go. I'm going to go this way. God's like, okay, that's great. How about a storm and a fish and vomit? Uh, that changed your mind? And so, bang, <laughs> suddenly Jonah now gets the clear call of God. He understands where he's going. And God loves to work that way. He, he, he gets his man or his woman. So when God gives you a call, a little bit of advice, and that would be follow God's call. 
When He puts His call on your life, embrace it. He does things inside of us to be sure that we won't quit. Jeremiah 29, or 20 in verse 9, one of my favorite verses says this. Jeremiah said, I will not mention of him or speak any more in his name. <laughs> and then he says, but there's a, in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up within my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot. So on the one hand, his brain saying, I can't do this anymore. On the other, his other side of his brain is saying, what are you, crazy? You have to do this. And that is the beautiful tension of those who feel the call of God. The calling from your Creator on your life is not optional. God has put a calling on you. And in some cases, He's given you hard circumstances that you would have never chosen. God's put you into a ministry that you would have never embraced on your own. And thank God you didn't have the choice. He gave it to you even though it was hard. So last Friday, I spoke at uh, Taylor University and spoke to the students and parents. It was Parents Weekend on the subject of suffering. And after the, um, the message at lunch, a, a mom came up to me just beaming, such joy in her face. And she was the mom of one of the students that three or four years ago, I can't remember how long it was, that was in a terrible van accident and her daughter died. And she came up to me. I told a little bit about our own journey with the death of our daughter. She grabbed my hands and she said, you know, the death of our daughter, I would have never chosen it. I miss her every single day. I wish she was here so much, but God has given me a ministry to hurting families and hurting moms. And I would have never had this ministry were it not for God's hard providence in my life. And I'm so glad for that ministry. And I thought, yes, that is painful grace. To embrace the calling that God has given us. God is not happy with Moses' response. Verse 14 tells us that Moses' response kindled the anger of God against him. And yet notice what God does. He's so merciful. He supplies Aaron as an assistant. Verse 14, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So here we have Aaron, who is introduced as the co-speaker of Moses, and eventually this will lead to Aaron's role as a part of the Levitical priesthood. Eventually, Moses will speak for God, and Aaron will lead the people. And we see, uh, from a spiritual perspective, and what we see is this new designation of prophet in Moses, priest in Aaron, and eventually we'll have king in the story of the Old Testament. And those of you who know the New Testament story, it's Jesus who becomes both prophet, priest, and king. And here we have the emergence of this Levitical priesthood. It is so kind of God at this moment to not immediately strike Moses dead, instead to provide a co-laborer to him to encourage Moses in the work of the ministry which he has been called. God could have annihilated him, and instead he chose to empower him. It's very gracious that God did this to Moses. And then we see verse 17, the text section here ends with a reference to Moses' staff. He says, Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And this staff, as we'll see throughout the book of Exodus, becomes a significant symbol of Moses' authority and his power. It represents the authority that God has given him, and it will be the means by which Moses will do many miracles, including parting the Red Sea, water from a rock. The staff will become very significant. Now, before we move into the obedience 
matter, let me just pause here and just ask you, so what does this trust issue have to do with you and what does it have to do with Jesus? Can I just remind you that trusting God is the essence of Christianity? It's where a relationship with Jesus starts when we put our trust in Him for the forgiveness of our sins. So if you're here today and you don't really understand what Christianity is all about, it essentially is this, that we put our trust in what Christ did on the cross such that God takes His death and counts it toward our account. And in believing that, in putting our faith in that, God grants us salvation and forgiveness. So we put our trust in what the Bible says. We put our trust in what Jesus did. We put our trust in God's promise that He will take Christ's death and apply it to us. So the essence of what Christianity is, is a trust. We trust that God will count Jesus' death as sufficient for us. Now, the, the challenge, though, is that trust doesn't just stop there. This is where many people who call themselves followers of Jesus make a huge mistake. They think, well, I trust Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, and then they don't really appropriate that trust every single day of their life. But following Jesus is a trust relationship every single day, that you trust Him not only for the forgiveness of your sins, but you trust Him every single day. You trust Him when your future is uncertain. You trust Him when your reputation has been maligned. You trust Him when you're waiting for the phone call on the diagnosis. You trust Him when you feel discontent with the circumstances of your life. I I trust that you know what you're doing and you haven't forgotten about me. What's more, we trust Him when He gives us assignments or opportunities or friends, or kids, or a spouse, or a challenge at work that we feel unqualified for when we feel unproven or inadequate. We, we, we trust Him when we know that we've failed before and when we're fearful. So the essence and the beauty of Christianity is that it fundamentally is a trust issue. And I just I want to get this into your heart, that... It is tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Not just for the salvation of our souls. That's where it starts. But you trust Jesus every single day of your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means that we have trusted Christ and that I keep trusting Him all the days of my life. And even Jesus modeled this. Think of the greatest struggle on earth As Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and He's pouring out His heart to God about the coming suffering, He says this in Matthew 26, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from Me. Is there any other way? Can we do this by any other means? If it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. And then He says this, a most important phrase, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. What is that? That is Jesus trusting in the will of the Father. He is submitting Himself to the will of the Father. So when you pray to Jesus about your need to trust, don't for a minute forget that Jesus knows exactly what it's like to hurt and to struggle and to have to trust. Jesus' trust created the possibility of yours. Christianity is about trust. That's the first issue. Here's the second one. The second one is the matter of obedience. So trust is a vital and foundational part of our relationship with God, but so is obedience. 
Obedience is really important. Think, for instance, even what Jesus said in the Great Commission. He said this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So obedience is what we are called to teach people and to do. Obedience is what is the aim of the new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, it says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. Why does God put his law on our hearts in the new covenant? Not just so you can know it, but so that you can obey it. That's why. So the law isn't just merely external and now becomes internal. God saves his people from their sins so that we can then obey him. He doesn't just save you so you won't go to hell. He saves you of your sins so that you can be a person who's obedient to him even in this lifetime. No greater example of this and how we see this play out in Exodus. God delivers his people from Egypt and then what does he do? He brings them to Mount Sinai where he gives them what? His law. So first comes the deliverance, then comes the obedience. In fact, this will become a central rub between God and Pharaoh. When Moses comes and says, let my people go, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, Pharaoh then has the audacity to say, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Well, he's about to learn. Therefore, it's important for Moses, as the future leader of Israel, to learn this lesson of obedience. Moses needs to obey. So, the section, pericope, begins with Moses returning back to Jethro, asking for his permission to leave as he was attempting to be respectful of his father-in-law. After receiving the blessing, Moses takes his family, begins the journey back to Egypt in verses 19 and 20. And notice in verse 20 that the staff of God was in his hand. Here is the staff again. Now, verses 21 to 23 are a bit of a prequel as to what will come next in throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. So let's just look at it from a high level. We'll study this over the next number of weeks and months. Verse 21 tells us that Moses is on his way to Pharaoh and he will perform the miracles that God has put in his power. Verse 21 also tells us that God will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now we'll explore this later, but let me just highlight here the sovereign control of God over the entire situation, including Pharaoh's heart. So God hardens Pharaoh's heart at the same time Pharaoh hardens his own heart. So God was sovereign, and yet Pharaoh was responsible. They are both sides of the same coin, and we'll unpack that in a few months. Verse 21, Pharaoh will not let his, will not let Israel go. And therefore, verse 23, notice this, God calls Israel his firstborn son, and therefore when Pharaoh refuses to let the firstborn son of God Israel go, God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. In other words, you won't let my firstborn son go, then I'll kill your firstborn son. So it's firstborn son for firstborn son. And verses 24 and 26, that's the primary focus of this text. It's an intriguing and interesting story. Look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What in the world's going on here? Let me explain it to you. Somewhere along... You've asked that question, right? I mean, I just asked the question that all of you were thinking. You're like, what? So let me explain it. Somewhere on their journey to Egypt, Moses' family's life, or maybe his own life, were 
in jeopardy. The text isn't entirely clear as to whose life was in danger. The NIV supplies the name Moses in the passage, but the Hebrew word is the word him. Since we just talked about firstborn son, it makes more sense to me that that's the theme that's carried into this next section. So I think it's not Moses' life that's on the line. I think it's Gershom, Moses' firstborn son, that's on the line. And this life-threatening situation has come because Moses has not obeyed a very basic, elementary, and foundational command, which was, you will embrace the Abrahamic covenant that you are my people by virtue of this external sign of circumcision. Apparently, let's assume Gershom is terribly ill, and Zipporah knows it is the judgment of God. And therefore, she circumcises their son, and as a result, was able to stay the disciplining hand, the dangerous hand of God. Verse 25, he left him alone. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because circumcision was the signature mark of covenantal ownership for the Jewish people. It was the proof of sonship. It meant that you identified with the Abrahamic covenant, that I will be your God and you will be my people. The the command in Scripture was clear in Genesis 17. God said this, This is my covenant that you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Verse 14, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So what happened here is that Moses had neglected a very basic issue of obedience. Moses was guilty of partial obedience. And God was not about to let him lead the people of Israel out of Egypt without first dealing with this very basic obedience issue. As Doug Stewart in his commentary says, even as he headed down to Egypt, he still did not have all aspects of his life, in this case his his family life, in order. And I think what happens here is a wake-up call to Moses. If I'm right, and it's Gershom, you can imagine what a wake-up call this would be to a dad, that because of his partial obedience... He almost lost his firstborn son. His reluctance in the first part of the passage needed to be trumped with trust and his partial obedience or his spiritual laziness needed to be trumped with full obedience. And so Zipporah saved her family by becoming the mediator through blood and that's probably why she says you are a bridegroom of blood to me. Zipporah saved her family from judgment by blood. The Bible never paints Moses as a perfect man. We'll see other failures in our study. But Moses, remember, he's the one who recorded this moment. He recorded this scenario to emphasize something that every follower of Jesus needs to hear and understand. Listen to me clearly, friends. Obedience matters. In the midst of a culture that says your morals really aren't that important and anybody can really do anything, and as long as um, they ask for forgiveness and they're a good person or they really sound like they're genuine, you can just kind of have a restart in life. The Bible talks about the fact there's always forgiveness, but there are consequences that are irrevocable. And we need to understand that obedience is really, really important. Take your Bible and look at Ephesians chapter 2. I don't in any one any way it's Ephesians two eight nine. I don't in any want in any way want to um, subvert the importance of 
God's grace. Because that's the very foundation of everything that we hold and believe. But I want you to understand that God has poured out His grace on you, not just so that you can know where you're going to go when you die, and not just to save you from condemnation. Listen, God poured His grace out on you so that you could repent and obey. So that you could be different right now in the world. And I want to call you in a clear and clarion and unequivocal way that the followers of Jesus are supposed to be godly. That's why we were redeemed. And the world, when they see ungodly Christians, why in the world would they want that? Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. So nobody in this room, nobody hears this message can say, I did my own salvation. No, you didn't. God did that. Not a result of works, so nobody can boast. Nobody can say, look what I did, because you didn't do it. God did it. If it was up to you, it would be terrible. That's why you need a Savior in the first place, because you're the problem. That's what the Bible tells us. The hope is Jesus. He can transform us from the inside out. So grace comes through faith so that no one can boast. And then it says this, verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, the beauty of the gospel is that it not only saves us from condemnation, it liberates us to godliness and sanctification. The call to follow Jesus is a call to be obedient. It's a call to be righteous. It's a call to be godly. So if you want to be a spiritual leader at any level, whether personally, in your family, in a Bible study, with fellow friends, be able to have any influence in this world, to be able to honor God in any way with your life, you must first and foremost be godly. The church doesn't need more talented people. The church needs more godly people. The church needs people who are obedient. And finally, nobody did this better than Jesus. It's just remarkable to think that here Jesus keeps the law perfectly. He becomes the blood sacrifice in order to spare us from the wrath of God. He perfectly obeys the Father and trusts Him and as a result paves the way for our salvation. Here's what Hebrews 5 says. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus obeyed so that it's even possible for you to obey. We don't do it in our own strength. The obedience that God produces, He produces in us. It starts with salvation, but the end game is obedience and good works. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You call yourself a follower of Jesus, then God calls you to trust. You call yourself a follower of Jesus then you're called to obey. It's 101 Christianity. So the question then is this, so where does God find you today? Do you need to recommit this morning to trust Him? Are you in a place where there needs to be a renewal of your commitment to believe that He is able? When you think of your life, 
When you think of obedience, is that something that needs to be embraced in a new way? Are you content with little areas of partial obedience? Do you kind of weight the scale? Well, I'm really good in this thing, but ah, I'm so good in this, and ah, I'm better than most. Are you justifying a half-hearted pursuit of God today? The Bible calls us, Moses calls us, Exodus 4 calls us, and Jesus calls us to trust and obey. It's what Moses needed to learn. It's what we need to learn. And thank God, it's exactly what Jesus did. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Would you pray with me? Father, we um, come today with imperfect lives and a story and a record of success and failure that you know all about. And today we just want to first acknowledge your trustworthiness and say to you, that we know who you are and that is enough. And so for my brothers and sisters today wrestling with the weight of hard circumstances, I pray you'd give them the ability and the power to say, God, I trust you with blank. God, I pray that they would today just simply say, God, I, I choose today to trust you again. And thank you that every day that they make that commitment, you'll be there supplying grace that they need. And then, Father, for those who today need to learn fresh and anew what it means to not just partially obey, but to take serious the call to be a fully loaded, repenting follower of you. Help, Lord, our church to be marked by people who get it when it comes to godliness. Lord, forgive us for the countless ways that our lives and what we say, what we do, what we look at and what we think about are not pleasing to you. So thank you that in the blood of Christ there's forgiveness and we ask you to help us by the Spirit to walk in the Spirit that will no longer fulfill the desires of the flesh. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There'll be some folks up here afterwards to pray with you if you have a spiritual need in your life. And then before you go and leave, let me just say one more word. We're starting our REACH, which is our emphasis on global missions. And one great way for you to get engaged is to go to a home of a college parker, have dinner with them and uh, a missionary. The sign-ups are out there in the foyer. Uh, My family and I are hosting a group on Friday night, and there's a bunch of spots available, lots of homes. So please check those out, sign up, and enjoy a meal with a missionary. All right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Have a great day.